Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. Well, today is Halloween, and that means we've officially entered into the holiday season. Now, what I'm about to say may be controversial but I'm going to say it anyway. You should start listening to Christmas music tomorrow. You should. Fly. <laughs> Good question, Isabel. Yeah. Uh, Arena, thank you for yelling that. Full disclosure about me, I've never stopped listening to Christmas music. I listen to it all year round. That's because it's one of God's great gifts to us. Why would I limit it to one or two months? That's just not a good, it's not good stewardship of resources that God's given us. You know what I mean? But you should start definitely listening, definitely listening to it tomorrow because that gives you two full months of really enjoying it and digging into it. But I don't love, I don't just love Christmas music. I love the whole holiday season. But I'm also not naive, right? Like the majority of us, my holidays are always filled with both beauty and brokenness, happiness and hard times. But this morning, I want to start by sharing with you a story of a time when the holidays really came through for me. It was last Christmas, we were at my in-law's house. Now, everyone was there. Everyone kind of lives in different places, um, but we were all there. Amy's brother and his family, Amy's sister and her family, Amy's parents, and us. Eight kids, seven adults, and a partridge in a pear tree. It was just perfect. Now, if you remember, last Christmas happened during a pretty big COVID spike. And so my brother-in-law is an ER doctor. My sister-in-law is a nurse. Most of us work kind of outside the home. And so we were trying to be really careful. And we planned to do everything outdoors, right? Presents and games and food and everything. Now, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I know that most of us were kind of disappointed that it was going to be this like COVID Christmas, that we couldn't gather really the, the way that we usually do. I wasn't really looking forward to it, to be honest with you. But I was so wrong. It was an amazing day. My sister-in-law brought her now famous pomegranate margaritas, which really set the tone for the whole day. The kids put on an impromptu Christmas concert. Nobody asked them to. They just like put it together. They rehearsed and they came together and just like laid this whole Christmas concert out. We ordered dinner from our favorite restaurant and we ate it around picnic tables. We even built a fire out back and made s'mores. And on top of all that, there was this one thing. It was so beautiful. I remember it so vividly, but it wasn't an event. It wasn't even a conversation. It was just a moment. It was this moment where I was sitting there and I look around 
at everyone talking and eating and laughing, and it was like time slowed down for a second. You ever have moments like that? Time slowed down for a second. In, in slow motion, I saw my sons dancing and singing with their cousins, Christmas carols at the top of their lungs. My wife and her siblings deep in conversation, haven't seen each other in a while, especially with COVID, right? And they were reconnecting. My in-laws watching it all with these huge smiles on their faces. I saw so many of the people that I love most experiencing a joy that doesn't come around very often. Moments like these are what Celtic Christians call thin places. Thin places. It's where the separation between God's space and our space feels incredibly thin. Where heaven doesn't seem like some distant imaginary place. It's times and moments where we instinctively know what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of God is at hand because we are experiencing it together. Frederick Buechner describes thin places like this. The best moments any of us have as human beings are those moments when, for a little while, it is possible to escape the squirrel cage of being me into the landscape of being us. In Texas, we might say, thin places happen when we stop being you and we start being y'all, right? Have you ever experienced a thin place? Maybe for you, it was when you held your child for the first time. And you kind of had this instinctual feeling that you would be connected kind of forever. You went from being me to being us. Maybe it was eating dinner around a table with some of your very best friends. Great food, great drinks, incredible conversation. You just paused for a moment and you were like, oh, this is so beautiful. I want to just hold on to a moment like this, you know? Maybe for you it's like hiking through nature with someone that you love, experiencing all that God has created and, and experiencing it with someone else. Or maybe it's just one time sitting at a bar, having a deeply spiritual conversation with someone that you never expected to have a deeply spiritual conversation with. And it's so beautiful that you just want to stop time. Thin places. Now, I don't know about you, but I often experience thin places around a table. And I think maybe that's because we so often find ourselves seated at tables. See, most of us eat, right, three times a day, and sure, some of those are in the car or on the go, but over the span of, the, of a year, that's like a 1,000 meals around tables. We work at tables, we take breaks at tables, we have meetings at tables, we gather around tables at restaurants and bars and coffee shops. The table is central to human life. We're the only part of creation that uses them, but we use them often. And it's been this way for thousands and thousands of years. In fact, there are stories of tables all over Scripture. A scholar named N.T. Wright says it like this, it's worth noting that this, at the center of the spiritual lives of God's people in both the Old and New Testaments, we find a table, the table of Passover and the table of communion. Now, if you've been a part of Restore, even for a short amount of time, you probably know that the table is of central importance to us as well. That's why our vision is to be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. And that's also why back in August, we kicked off our year around the table. 
which simply just means that we're spending this next fall and spring walking through what it looks like to embody the vision I just talked about. And we're not just talking about it. We're trying to discover and implement practical ways to live it out in our lives and in the life of our church family. This includes a bunch of different things. It includes helping people find community through restore groups, supporting Afghan refugees coming to Austin that so many of you are a part of, and, and everything in between. We think about creating a space where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. It is all-encompassing. This morning, we start our second teaching series inside of this year, and it's simply called Invited to the Table. I told you back uh, a couple of months ago, we were working through these, these measures, these things that would be true about us if we were seated at Jesus' table and experiencing his extravagant love. So we just went through one called I'm a part of the family. What does it mean to be a part of God's family and part of this family here at Restore? What does that look like? We walked through the Lord's Prayer. This one is this measure called I live invitationally. And we really believe that if we are seated at Jesus' table and experiencing this extravagant love, then we will not just hoard it for ourselves, that we will invite people into it. And that's so much more than like an invitation to church, although that is awesome. It is inviting people into our lives, into our homes, into our businesses, into relationship with each other. So throughout this series, we're going to look at some of these table stories in Scripture, And our hope, my hope, is that we all walk away understanding two things. Number one, everyone has a seat at Jesus' table with their name on it. And number two, we have been called to invite people to sit with us at Jesus' table and experience his extravagant love. So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at stories from Scripture about how the table is a place of connection. We're going to look at the story of Mary and Martha and Jesus, right, and how... Mary chose what was best, this, this deep connection with Jesus, and how we often get sucked into to choosing, like, to put on some Instagram dinner party, or, right, like, where well, the food matters so much, or the place matters so much, or the people there matter, but, like, it's the connection, right? The table is a place of connection. We're going to look at how the table is a place of redemption. Look at the story of Jesus after his resurrection going to Peter and the other disciples, and remember, they're around this campfire. I'm going to call that a table. It's like, you know, they're eating fish on the side of a lake. And as they're eating together, Jesus reinstates Peter. Peter denied him three times. And Peter reinstates him. It's this place of redemption. Our tables should be too. We're going to look at how the table is a place of restoration. We're going to look at this kind of obscure Old Testament story about King David and a guy named Mephibosheth. It's this beautiful story. I can't wait to walk through it with you. And we're going to look at how the table is a place of abundance this kingdom banquet that we all get to participate in, how there's enough to go around when we don't hoard it. We'll also talk about how we put these practices, in, these biblical values into practice in our everyday lives. Again, my goal, my hope is not just that we would like talk about these things together. It's that we would all leave this place and go and actually put them into practice in our lives. But today... We're going to kick it off by talking about how Jesus' table is a place for everyone. Now, when it comes to Jesus' table, there has been this long debate about who is invited and who is not, who has a seat and who doesn't. Candidly, it's baffling to me that this is still argued about when Jesus so explicitly settled it during his time on earth. It happens a lot of different times, actually, but my favorite is found in Luke's account of Jesus' life. 
We're going to be in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. You can look on your Bibles, on your phone, device, and screen. Uh, the verses will also be on the screen behind me if you want to just follow along there. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. It says, Later, as Jesus has left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. And many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees, those are the kind of religious elite, religious leaders of the time. But the Pharisees and their teachers of the religious law complained bitterly against Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Scum is a pretty harsh thing to call someone, right? We can call things, I call people a lot of things. Scum is like, there's no messing around. Like, you know what you mean when somebody calls you scum. Other Bible translations, like yours, might say tax collectors and sinners. But I think scum actually gets to the point a little bit quicker. This is a New Living Translation. That's because tax collectors and sinners was actually not a specific distinction. It was like a broad category of people. And it was often used to group together anyone who was deemed unworthy of something called table fellowship table fellowship. So anytime you see this kind of broad term in scripture, tax collectors and sinners, that is this bigger group. They're not just tax collectors. They're this whole group of people that society or the religious elite had said, you are unworthy of something called table fellowship. I talked about this idea of table fellowship back in August when we kicked off our year around the table, but this is how pastor Malcolm Smith describes it. In our Western culture, our first thought in eating is to satisfy hunger. There may be other reasons we eat, but essentially we eat together because it is mealtime and we are hungry. In the countries of the Middle East, eating was and still is a relational event. One ate bread, this is the important part, to declare, establish, nurture, and seal a covenant relationship. That's why people ate together. To eat with someone was called table fellowship and meant that the persons eating at the table now stood in covenant solidarity with each other. This was like a contractual social agreement that you entered into when you ate with someone in this time and this place. So in this story, right, Jesus finds himself at Levi's house sharing a table with those broadly considered unworthy of it. And according to the religious leaders and the culture at large, these folks were unclean, unacceptable, and undeserving. But Jesus didn't see them that way, right? So when they asked, why are you eating with such scum, Jesus replied by saying this, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. You see, Jesus tells the religious leaders, you guys think you're righteous, but you're not. Y'all think you have it all together, but you don't. Everybody needs forgiveness, everybody needs love, and everybody needs the life that I am offering freely to them. The only difference between you, religious elite, and these people you consider unworthy is that they know they need that and you don't. That's what Jesus is saying here. I love this story because it's like the religious leaders assume Jesus must not know what he's doing. Like he must be so ignorant or so backwoods. Remember, he's from Nazareth, right? Like the town that nothing good can come from. It was kind of this hillbilly town. So he must be so ignorant or so backwoods that he just kind of stumbled into this dinner party 
with sinners and tax collectors. They're like, Jesus, I, I don't know if you know who you're sitting with here, but like, this isn't okay. But all that, that couldn't be further from the truth. Here's Malcolm Smith again. For Jesus to eat with tax collectors was not a social blunder done in ignorance. It was not a political gaffe of a newcomer to religious politics. He ate with them intentionally in a deliberate public act, sending a clear message that he knew could not be misunderstood by anyone. He was announcing that he was the friend of scum. He was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was declaring, establishing, nurturing, and sealing a covenant relationship with some of the most marginalized people in that time and place. And this was a really, really big deal. One scholar calls it the scandal of Jesus' disreputable entourage. I love that. Like, this was a scandal. People talked about it, not just to Jesus and his disciples, but they, they talked about it amongst themselves. We actually hear later on the religious leaders were kind of into a conversation that they're having away from everyone else where they're talking about how Jesus is disrupting everything. He's including all these tax collectors and sinners and scum into the family of God, and they can't have it, right? And they start to plot to kill him. That comes later. By eating with these folks who were considered unclean, Jesus is violating centuries of tradition, and don't miss this, breaking Jewish purity laws, intentionally breaking Old Testament laws. In his excellent work called Contagious Holiness, New Testament scholar Dr. Craig Blomberg, he surveys how table fellowship was viewed and used throughout the Old Testament, Greco-Roman culture, and Jewish religious law. And he finds that in all three of those areas, there's this common theme. In the Old Testament, it clearly encourages sharing meals with friends, but it warns people, do not share meals with enemies. This same idea is also found in kind of extra-biblical sources from the ancient Near East. Eating with the right people brings blessing. Eating with the wrong people brings a curse. Dr. Blomberg compares this understanding of table fellowship to how Jesus used the table during his ministry on earth. And here's his conclusion. Jesus uses table fellowship as the setting for redrawing the religious boundaries of his world. That is a huge statement. Thousands of years of tradition, hundreds of Jewish laws, Jesus is rewriting them. He is redrawing the boundaries of religion in that world. Jesus thus behaves toward these outsiders, these unclean, contemptible persons of ignoble status as though they were acceptable, as though they were his own kin. And as he does, many of them choose to follow him and indeed become kin as new members in Christ's spiritual family. In other words, Jesus not only defied religious laws and cultural norms when he welcomed sinners to his table, he actually flipped the old way of doing things completely upside down. Jesus explains this in detail in the very next verse. This exchange between him and the religious leaders continues. There's actually a subtitle in the breakdown of most Bibles when you're working through Luke here. But this is the same scene. It's a continuation of the conversation. Here's what happens. They, that's the religious leaders, said to him, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Jesus responded, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. 
But someday the groom, the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. He's predicting his death there. Then Jesus gave them this illustration. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. For then the new garment would be ruined and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. Another example, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here, what he's getting at? Jesus wasn't just pushing back on the old way of doing things. He was creating something completely new. He said you can't put it back in the old ways. You can't make it fit in the old wineskins. You can't grab it and put it on a patch for the old way of doing things. This is something new. And I am inaugurating it now. Trying to take the new and combine it with the old wasn't going to work. Jesus was saying it's this way or nothing. You see, what so many religious leaders then and even now don't realize is that the table doesn't belong to them. The table, Jesus' table, does not belong to them. It doesn't belong to any of us. Therefore, we don't get to decide who is allowed to have a seat and who isn't. The table belongs to Jesus, and he has made it abundantly clear who gets to sit with him. Anyone who wants to. That's who gets to sit with Jesus. Anyone who wants to. What I love about Jesus, one of the many things, he's great, P.S., <laughs> is that even in stories like this, right, when he is like showing up, the religious elite, and being like, you guys have it totally twisted. This is the way that it was supposed to be. There is still almost always an invitation to that group to join him at the table. It's incredible. It's incredible. One of my favorite kind of pastor theologian guys is a guy named Carlos Rodriguez. He runs the Happy Givers. He's in Puerto Rico. Incredible ministry. He talks about, I'm going to butcher this line, but he talks about how Jesus is on the side of the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. He goes to that side. But he invites everyone to join him there, right? The invitation to Jesus' table is always open because Jesus didn't just trade one exclusionary stand for another. This is what we often do, right? Especially those that maybe are like in the little bit more progressive spaces, right? And, and we get really frustrated by the way that things have been done, Right? And we want to just create these, our new spaces, new tables, right? And then we want to exclude the people that we're excluding the other people, right? And we end up trading one exclusive table for another. That is not the way of Jesus. We often build our own table and then tell anyone we don't like that they can't sit with us. And then we pretend like it's justice. That's not. That's not the way of Jesus. He doesn't trade one exclusive table for another. He created the very first truly all-inclusive table, a place where prostitutes and tax collectors sit next to Pharisees and priests, a place where he calls everyone to set aside their biases, to take up their crosses, and to follow him. This dinner party at Levi's house, it wasn't a one-and-done event. Jesus actually partied with these kinds of people 
so much that the religious elites accused him of being, quote, a glutton and a drunkard. Not if you remember that. You remember that? They called Jesus a drunk and a glutton. You know, for us, that phrase doesn't really mean anything kind of beyond like the normal like connotation we have today, like, oh, you know, that drinks a lot and eats a lot. Like that's, that's what we think. And it is that, but it really means more than that. It had incredible significance for the Jewish people. Listen to this law from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. Listen, he is a glutton and a drunkard. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. This is very purposeful language from the religious elites about Jesus. They called him a glutton and a drunkard to insinuate that he was a rebellious son worthy of death. All because he opened up his table to everyone. Isn't that incredible? Even in this moment, even early on in Jesus' ministry, they are already setting the table, excuse the pun, to end up accusing him of something worthy of death. This idea of a fully inclusive table is so scandalous, so offensive, that Jesus would die for it. He would die for it. But the threat of death, and even death itself, couldn't stop Jesus from making sure that everyone had a seat at his table, even the religious leaders, because Jesus is in the business of creating these thin places, these places where we can pause and look around and see the incredible diversity at the table of God and think, this is what heaven must be like, thin places. His table is always a place where the separation between heaven and earth feels so thin, it's almost invisible. This truth was memorialized in in 1537 by a Venetian painter named Paolo Veronese. Paolo was commissioned to paint a huge Last Supper mural for the convent at San Giovanni Basilica in Venice, Italy. And they wanted it to be one of the largest paintings of its kind. So Paolo is given a canvas, a huge canvas, 18 and a half by 43 feet. Huge canvas. So, right, he goes away for months to paint. He's got to do his masterpiece. And he comes back and he unveils the painting. And this is what it looks like. Does that look like the Last Supper? Not really. Not really. Now, if you know anything about the Last Supper, you probably noticed there are a few more people than usual in this picture. In addition to Jesus and the apostles, Paolo decided to include a myriad of other people, jesters, servants, royalty, children, animals, outcasts, and noblemen alike are in the picture. Now, you you may not know this, but today isn't just Halloween. Today is also something called Reformation Day. Raise your hand if you knew it was Reformation Day. Oh, not bad. I'm impressed. Today is also Reformation Day. Every October 31st, Martin Luther is remembered for nailing his 95 theses on the door of a Catholic church in Germany, which essentially began something called the Protestant Reformation, which 
we're all sitting here because of the Protestant Reformation. Not perfect, pretty big problems inside of it, but we don't have time to examine all that today. That all happened in 1517. And when it did, the Catholic Church began something called the Counter-Reformation, which is exactly what it sounds like, right? There's the Reformation, we're going to do the Counter-Reformation, and we're going to come out. So, and it sought, out, it sought to root out and punish anything deemed kind of outside of Catholicism inside of the Catholic Church. They didn't want the 95 Theses thing to happen again. So Paolo's painting is just 20 years after this, 1537. It happened in 1517. So he paints this in 1537, and it kind of fell into that category. So shortly after the picture was completed, he was summoned to appear before a Roman Catholic tribunal to defend himself against charges of heresy. This was a really big deal because the tribunal had been given the power to exercise all forms of punishment, listen, including the death penalty. They were not messing around. What's cool, though, is that the entire transcript of Paolo Veronese's trial with the Catholic tribunal, you can find it online. Like, it's still there. They've recorded this whole thing. But I want to read you my favorite part. Roman Catholic tribunal, the inspector general says this. What is the subject of the picture you are speaking of? Paolo. It is a painting of the Last Supper with Jesus Christ with his apostles in the house of Simon. Inspector, who do you believe was at the Last Supper? Paolo, Christ was there with his apostles, but listen, but there was more space, so I included other figures. Who was there? Who was at the Last Supper, Paolo? Because this doesn't really look like it. Well, Christ was there with his apostles, but there was more space, so I included more people. How amazing is that? This tribunal has the power to sentence Paolo to death, but even in the face of that, he does not back down. He says there was extra room at Jesus' table, so I included more people. I so desperately want to live my life like Paolo Veronese. No matter what anyone else says, and regardless of what the consequences may be, I am going to keep welcoming anyone and everyone to Jesus' table who wants a seat. The tribunal decided to give Paolo three months to make the painting only Jesus and his disciples. Like, you got three months to fix this, Paolo, or we're coming down hard on you. Guess who he decided to remove? No one. Not a single person, not even the animals. He left the animals in there. In fact, he didn't change anything about the painting at all. Instead, he simply changed the name of it from the Last Supper to the Feast at the House of Levi, the story we just talked about today. Frustrated, but unable to press the matter any further, the tribunal dropped the charges. And today, Paolo's incredible painting hangs in a Venice museum for all to see. Here's what Paolo understood that the tribunal didn't. Jesus' table is and will always be open to anyone and everyone who wants to sit with him. If there was extra space at the table, Jesus was going to invite more people to sit down. And since there was extra space in the painting, Paolo painted more people in. 
And here's what the tax collectors and sinners understood that the religious leaders didn't. It's Jesus' table. It's not ours. We don't police it, we don't control it, and we don't regulate it. When it comes to Jesus' table, our only job is to make sure anyone who wants a seat finds one. That is our job. Jesus has made it abundantly clear. His table is a place for everyone. There is a seat with my name on it, and there's a seat with your name on it. There's even one with the name of the person that you think is least deserving to sit there. All any of us have to do to take our seat is humbly sit down and begin following the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, oh, I thank you so much for this story. I thank you for the witness of Jesus. I thank you for the witness of the disciples. I thank you that even to the point of death, Jesus was committed to making sure his table was a place for everyone. And I want to thank you, God, for the life of Paolo Veronese and people like him who even in the threat of death said there was more room at Jesus' table, so I kept adding people to it. God, make that true of us. Make that true of us as individuals. Make that true of us as a church. And no matter the consequences, no matter the obstacles we may face, God, that we stay committed to this way of Jesus, this upside-down kingdom that he came to inaugurate. The new wine that won't fit in the old wineskins. And that we would live our lives for this. And we would follow in the way of Jesus in every single thing that we do. And that our tables in our homes, our tables in our businesses... And our table here at Restore would always be a place where anyone has a seat and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. Amen.